It's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out your door. You step onto the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you'll be swept off to. That's what Gandalf the Grey told Frodo Baggins at the beginning of their adventure. Have you ever felt like life is like that road? Like you've been swept away, you don't know where you're going, you don't know where to put your feet to hold on? Well, that's what we're here for today. We're here to talk about the Wildwood, where all the crazy things happen, where all the wild stuff happens, and you just don't know which direction to go. Today, I'm going to bring you some words from the Wildwood that'll help you keep your feet. Welcome back, everybody, to our podcast today. Hope you had a fantastic week. A little chance to think about the things we talked about last week. Now, being born again is where our journey as believers begin. We talked about that, what it means. We talked about its history and the way it implies a change in us, a rebirth in our experience as human beings when we encounter the power of Jesus Christ. Now, the next step that Jesus demonstrates in the book of John, this next step in this journey after being born again, is one that takes a lifetime to live out. Most things happen in a moment, in a day, in a week, in a month. This happens over the course of an entire lifetime. Now, in Jesus' day, people went to the temple in Jerusalem to worship God. Those appointed festivals when people would gather together and they would recite the psalms and the hymns and the spiritual songs of their day and they would sing those praises to God. They would make their sacrifices. That was their way of interacting and coming into contact with the holy God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now today we do not encounter him in the temple. The temple of course was destroyed in 70 AD when General Titus, later Emperor Titus, uh, marched in Jerusalem and it was said that an, a soldier accidentally threw a torch into the into the sanctuary area setting fire to the temple and then when they saw there was gold on the walls they tore the temple apart brick for brick to get all the gold they could and of course the temple has not existed since that day we know in the last days on earth that the temple will be rebuilt as a time to reactivate the worship of Yahweh but now that day is not here yet but it is coming soon so until then we have no temple, but we have something even more important. When Jesus left, he sent us the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit would dwell not in a building, not in a church, not in a temple, but within the sanctuary of the human soul, the human heart. He would come to live inside of us. So today we encounter him in the sanctuary of our heart and soul. And it is to that place that we must make preparation. It is that place which we must look after. We are in, of course, the book of John. And we are in chapter 2, starting in verse 13. And in verse 13, we're going to see something very important about our relationship with God. Because you see, Jesus was going to perform what we call the cleansing of the temple, the cleansing of the temple. But we as Christians also, on a day-to-day -day basis, we must also keep our temple clean. Where's that? Our heart, our soul, our relationship with God. This cleansing of our temple, this cleansing of our heart, is something that takes place every day for the rest of our lives. How do we keep the house of God, our internal spirit, our internal temple, how do we keep it clean? How do we make it a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit worthy of Him? 
We do this by avoiding three dangerous traps that our world has set for us. In the world we live in today, there are three dangerous traps that many people encounter that would contaminate or pollute the, uh, the holy place of God in our hearts and in our souls. These three dangerous traps are as follows. The first one, false religion. False religion is a very dangerous trap that is present everywhere in our modern culture and time. Think of it as security in rituals. We think that our security, our relationship is somehow based on the rituals that we carry out. And if we do them right, if we do them often enough, that somehow we're acceptable to God. Let's take a look at this. John chapter 2, verse 13. The Jewish Passover was near, and so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, in the temple, he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves. He also found the money changers sitting there. The money changers' job was to take currency from other countries, other peoples, changing it into money that was acceptable to donate as an offering in the temple, turning it into shekels that the uh, temple could accept. So taking four money, making it acceptable, and oftentimes making a huge profit off it too. After making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. He told them, those who were selling the doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. This was, of course, was written about the Messiah, that the Messiah would come with a passion unseen for 400 years, and that passion would be for the sanctity of God's house. If only we protected ourselves today, protected our hearts the way that they did back then, protecting the temple of God. Of course, we know that it was against all the Jewish laws to be carrying on this marketplace activity within the temple grounds. Outside, before coming into the sanctuary, before coming into the temple grounds, you could sell animals, buy animals, change money, but not once you entered the holy place. I know what many of you are thinking. There are some ways that we uh, tread very dangerously close to doing that in our modern churches today. Sometimes we have more money-making activities going on in the church than needs to actually to be happening. Now, expelling religion and idolatry, that is a constant focus of the dedicated Christian. We all know this. Isaiah 5, 20-21 says this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own estimation or in their own sight. You see, what does that mean? It means that sometimes in the name of religion, in the name of man's acceptable religion, we change things around. We say, well, this is not too bad. This is okay. Now that we can't really accept, but we're going to limit the number of things we can't accept because we don't want to drive away too many people. After all, don't we need a lot of money to support these huge churches, these massive buildings, these huge programs? We need money to do that. So don't we want to compromise a little bit on God's word if it means that more people can come and more people can feel happy? Of course not. It's the worst kind of false religion that sells the acceptableness of lifestyle in the modern place. It's kind of um, 
a sad commentary on our world today. In the days of the Puritans back in the day, the way they estimated the success of a revival was, was the word of God preached completely, fully, and powerfully. They didn't count how many converts, didn't count how many baptisms. They didn't try to count how much money was raised during the revival. If the pastor came in or the preacher came in, told the truth, spoke it clearly so that all could understand what God required, that was considered a successful revival. I wish we still had that same standard today. But consider Jeremiah 7, 8 through 11. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, God speaking about the temple, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all of these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares Yahweh. God saw what we were doing. He saw our duplicity. He saw our falsehood. He saw us doing all of the things that the pagans accepted, enjoying all the religions with their drinking and their open lifestyles, and saying that this is wonderful, this is wonderful, but then coming into the temple when they were required to by the law of Moses and saying, hey, aren't we blessed? Isn't God good to us? Look at all that we have. And then walk back out of the gates of the temple and go back to living the way everybody else did. That is sometimes what happens in church. I mean, if everybody was the same person on Monday that they are on Sunday, I think the world would be a different place. I think if we upheld the same standards on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday, the same supported the same programs that we support on Sunday in church where it's safe, I think the world would be forced to confront the reality of what they do and how they behave themselves. So you see, that is my thing. We live with security and ritual. If I show up at church on Sunday, on Christmas and Easter, and if I drop by on Mother's Day or Father's Day, and maybe I come to the occasional uh, baptism ceremony, or I come to the occasional child dedication service, then I must be okay with God because I'm showing up and I'm doing the rituals. The rituals won't do it. The rituals won't cleanse you. The rituals won't make you right. The Ten Commandments were never to justify the Israelites. The Ten Commandments were to show them their guilt. Then faith in a God who forgives is what set them right. And so that's the very first thing we see. False religion is a dangerous trap in this day and age. The second dangerous trap is this. False expectations. That's right, false expectations, or what I like to call security and external things. If I am successful in business, if I have a, a good family and my kids are doing well in school, you know, I have the right car, the right house, live in the right neighborhood, well, God must be blessing me. And I can say, oh, am I not blessed? Well, how about the person who's poor? How about the person who works 40, 50, 60 hours a week and does that and just gets by? Does that mean he is not blessed? She is not blessed? She's not favored by God because they don't have the external things? Consider this next set of verses. This is really important. It's really important you get this. John 2.18. So the Jews replied to him after he said everything and drove them out of the temple. They replied to him, What sign will you show us 
for doing these things. So you're, you're doing all these things in the temple. You're driving people out. Yeah, we know they're not supposed to be here, but you're actually doing something about it. Where's your sign? Where's the proof that you're here from God? Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Now, of course, they're thinking with a secular, human, physical, tangible mindset. And they thought, oh, you can't tear this temple down in three days. I mean, tear it down and then you raise it back up in three days. Verse 20 says this, Therefore the Jews said, This temple took 46 years to build. And will you raise it back up again in three days after we destroy it? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. You see, when Jesus spoke, he intended for the Holy Spirit to bring to the remembrance of the disciples exactly what he had said. That's why we trust the word of God. The Holy Spirit was instrumental in making sure that everything Jesus said was accurately recorded in the memory of his disciples, that they wrote it down truthfully, honestly, and that that's why we could have his word of we can have the word of God today. And so basically they said, hey, where's your sign? What, what are you trying to prove to us? If you want to see what we're talking about, consider this. 1 Corinthians 1, 20-24. Where is the one who is wise? This is something he would have said back in the day. Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Jesus came. He showed them who God was. He told them what God said. They didn't believe him. He says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, Greeks demand wisdom, but we preach Jesus Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Amazing statement that I wish we could get our hands on today. He basically says this, you're looking for Christianity to make logical, reasonable sense. It only makes logical, reasonable sense when you have the faith to see it with. Remember, the non-Christian does not have the eyes of the Holy Spirit. They do not have the understanding of the Holy Spirit. So when they read this, it seems like foolishness or drivel to them. It seems like the raving of lunatics. Now, of course, these are the same people that believe we evolved from pond scum. These are the same people who believe we were seeded by ancient aliens. And these are the same people who believe that um, people from other planets came and they took monkeys and advanced them to where we are today. Although, if you ask me, we haven't come very far yet. But uh, they believe all of this rather than accept the fact that there is a God. And the book of Romans says it. They knew there was a God, but they refused to accept it because they refused to allow God to be God and to have authority over them. That's all it really is. It's not the inability to believe in a God. It's the unwillingness to submit to a holy God who has the power and authority to say what is right and what is wrong. That's what's driving people insane today. They don't want to be under the authority of a holy God. They want to do things their own way. They want, we said it a couple of weeks ago, we want to be Frank Sinatra, we want to do it my way. Well, my way is not God's way, and unfortunately, if you want to get to heaven, you have to do it 
God's way. And that's just the truth of it. So 1 Corinthians spells it out for us very clearly right there. So the very first problem we see, false religion, finding our security in rituals. The second problem, false expectations. Yeah, security in external things, in the things you can see, whether that be wisdom or signs. Jesus sometimes wouldn't do signs because they wouldn't do any good anyways. The people had an unbelieving heart. The very third thing I want you to look at today as we go through the rest of this chapter is false followers. Sometimes we believe if, if a religious movement has enough people, a lot of people, a lot of young people, or a lot of wealthy people, that somehow that there's going to be uh, some truth in there. We call this security in numbers. If the church is huge and the pastor has enough diamonds on his fingers and he drives a big enough car and lives in a big enough house, we figure that religion must be successful because look at how good the pastor's doing. Well, if that was the measure of all things, looking at the history of pastors from the very first century and Peter onwards, I would say that the Christian religion doesn't really work that well because most of us just get by day to day and throughout the history of the church, pastors who were successful, who were powerful, died as ordinary men, not wealthy barons of, of industry, but as regular ordinary men whose lives were given in the cause of Christ. So let's take a look at this last little bit of section here. John chapter 2, verse 23. While he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all and because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what is in a man. Wow, we got to break some of these words down. There's a lot right here. I took this directly out of the old Encyclopedia of Intelligentsia, which means the Intelligent Encyclopedia. The word entrust here, which we have uh, right in verse 24, here, it's the same word as in John 2, 23, the verse right before it, when he says that, that those who believed in his name when they saw the signs. So the word believe is the same word as the word entrust. It means to put trust or confidence in someone. And to put confidence is not just to think, oh, that sounds like a good idea, but it means to really invest in that person's identity and in what they're saying. Jesus did not put trust or reliance on the people who were coming to him because he knew what people were like. He knew how flighty they were. He did not leave himself in their hands. He acted cautiously, prudently. Now, the proper time for him to die had not yet come, and he secured his own safety by not trusting these people because, you know, the reason he didn't is because he knew what people were like. He knew that people were fickled, that they were inconsistent, that they sometimes were swayed by the movement of the crowd. You know, he talks about the double-minded man, and he's unstable in all his ways. Jesus knew these people were impressed by the signs, but how, many, how quickly would it take for them to walk away? We know that later, many people who believed in Jesus or trusted in him that when they saw the true cost of discipleship, that it would cost them everything, that it would cost them homes and wealth and security and public status, when they would have to give up so much to follow Jesus, then it says they just walked away. They just left him behind because they didn't want to sacrifice what they had, even if what they believed Jesus was saying was the truth. 
And that's kind of a sad thing that it comes to that. See, he knew how easily people could turn against him. He knew how it could go from uh, praise, praise to crucify, crucify. Jesus knew what people were like, and he knew how quickly they would turn against him. He knew what his future was. So he knew that it wasn't time to really entrust himself to these people, that these were not the true disciples. Now, the ones who followed him, the ones who came from John, who heard, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, they began to follow. And when things got tough, they pressed in on Jesus. The same thing is true of us. If you're going through life and everything is all hunky-dory and everything is good, it's easy to believe in Jesus. When you are financially secure, when you are respected in your community, when your family has everything it needs and then some, it's easy to believe in Jesus. But when suddenly people don't like the name Christian, they don't like the things Jesus talked about, they don't like the lifestyle that Jesus said was our lifestyle, then we'll find out how much you really entrust God, how much you really put in and, and, and place at stake when you're following him. And that's a difficult thing. So how did Jesus really know these men who were talking to him? Easy. Hebrews 4, 12 through 13, and then we're done. Here it is. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. He saw past their, ex their external acceptance, and he saw their internal doubt. It says that no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom they must give an account. You see, God sees us. Jesus sees us, not the external things that we want everyone to see, but he sees who we really are deep inside. He sees whether we have faith or no faith, whether reacting because it's a fair weather day or when things get really hard and our faith really buckles down, then he knows that too. And every believer can trust in the fact that when Jesus says, those who are for me, okay, are not those who are against me, and those who are against me are not for me, that he sees that difference between the sheep and the goats. You're either one or the other. And I think that's the important thing that we have to think about. We have to come back and go, you know what? It is true. I am born again. And when I am born again, I have to look at a lifestyle of commitment, which means I have to keep my temple clean. Throughout the history of the temple in Jerusalem, there were many times when it was contaminated. When Antiochus Epiphanes put up a, an altar, I believe it was to Zeus, in the temple itself, and he began to sacrifice pigs on that altar. Uh, it was sacrilege to the Jews. It was horrible that they would sacrifice an unclean animal to a false god in the very temple itself. And we know that that was the cause for the Maccabean Revolution, and it was the cause for the, uh, the rebellion and the cleansing. We have Hanukkah today because they were going to rededicate the temple. And there was only one day's worth of oil left in, in all the restores of the temple before it would run out. But God blessed. He multiplied that oil to last for eight days. That's why there's eight days in Hanukkah. That's why they celebrate the rededication of the temple. You know what? Why don't you take the next eight days have Hanukkah. Rededicate your life, your heart. Recommit 
to the things that God has promised, to the expectations that God has placed on us. Each of us goes through difficulties in life. Sometimes we find ourselves further away from our faith than we remember being. Sometimes um, cruelty happens. Sometimes uh, horrible things happen in the lives of believers. Um, Attacks, physical attacks, financial attacks. And we all find ourselves with our temple defiled, defiled by anger or doubt or fear or hate. And we just realize that our temple is not clean anymore. Jesus cleansed the temple of all of those things that were distracting away from the worship of God. We can do that over the next eight days, seven days, six days, whatever it, whatever you got. Dedicate yourself to re-cleaning your temple, to getting rid of things like jealousy, envy, strife, uh, bickering, backbiting, all the things that destroy the testimony of the church, and all the things that take the joy out of living the Christian life. Let yourself be rededicated. Let the oil of the Holy Spirit flow and relight those candles of dedication and, and, and bring us back to that repurposed life. I invite you to, the, to do that with me this week to begin that rededication process and cleansing our temple. And we will find ourselves again together next week as we move in to chapter 3. So until then, may God bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you. May he give you grace and may he send somebody into your life this week that you can share this message with. Maybe there's someone that you know, that you love, that you care about, who needs to rededicate their temple and to get it cleaned up and to throw out the garbage and all of the emotional baggage that keeps us from worshiping God fully. And when we do that, the light of those candles in the temple will shine brightly and we will see God as we have always seen him, as the glorious one, as the coming king, as the one who one day will call us from heaven and bring us home. Until then, God bless you and we'll see you out there. Hey, thank you for visiting our podcast today. Both Words from the Wildwood and From the Archives are presented to you by our family as an offering to Almighty God in the hope that they will help you grow in your understanding of God's amazing Word. If what you hear has been a blessing, consider supporting our efforts by sending us your prayers and by letting others know where they can hear us on local podcasts. If you are in the U.S. and you are able to help in any way, shape, or form, please send any support to Richard Stidham, S-T-I-D-H-A-M, P.O. Box 1321, Baytown, Texas 77522. If you are outside the States, God bless you and share Jesus with those that you can. God bless and we'll be back soon.